Do you think it's possible that you want me to be the killer? You know, how some guys are into blondes and some guys are into killers. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time erotic fiction fanboy, Andrew Raphael. Hey, ah, Gaz, can you reach the top shelf? My gimp suit's restricting me movement. (laughs) I was going to say, erotic fiction. Yeah, maybe the version of erotic fiction we have over here is like, what's it called, like Razzler or something like that? (laughs) And today we're welcoming Sharon Stone with open legs as we watch Basic Instinct 2. But is this a unfairly maligned sequel? Or is the only Basic Instinct these filmmakers should have listened to is the one that told them not to make the film? Find out after the trailer. Her prints were all over the crime scene. We haven't got a case, Roy. Well, just make one. We'll order a psychiatrist to say she's a danger. Gotta make sure we get somebody good and tough. Dr. Glass. This is Catherine Trinnell. So is this where we're gonna do it? Oh, so you're a writer. What do you write about? Oh, the sexual. The violent. The basic instincts. I'm sorry you're not allowed to smoke in here. You know what I like about you? You enjoy being in control, like me. I'm not the one who's on trial for murder. Not yet. Do I make you uncomfortable? Careful, Michael. She's trying to seduce you. Did you kill him? If I said I didn't, would you believe me? Everything that comes out of her mouth's a lie. Even the truth's a lie. What exactly do you want? I wanted it from the first moment I saw you, and you did too. How do you picture it, Doctor? Serial minge flasher Catherine <laughs> Trammell is back and duller than ever in this ITV crime drama looking piece of shit sequel. <laughs> yeah, I was I was grappling with serial minge flasher. Yeah. Basic Instinct 2 takes us from the vibrant, vertigo-inspired colours of San Francisco to the toilet duck-inspired blues of London. <laughs> Here, David Morrissey stars as Mr. Michael Douglas was busy, a therapist who soon finds his controlled world turned upside down by the insidious Tremel. In this film that has all of the sexual charge of a bag of loose batteries... <laughs> Sorry, one second. <laughs> this actually happened to my dad. Okay. Uh. This has all of the sexual charge of a bag of loose double-A batteries you bought from a guy in a pub. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it actually happened to him. He bought, like, about one o'clock in the morning, he was at a pub, and a guy was, like, walking through going, hey, mate, want to buy any batteries? (laughs) And he was like, ah, yeah, go on, then, I'll buy them. Uh, He's thinking, oh, Trey will be real, she'll love that. Okay, came on with some batteries. <laughs> Not a single Why? one of the fuckers works. <laughs> they're probably all his empties. Yeah. <laughs> they were like rusting at the ends. They're extra tasty, these ones, lad. <laughs> leaking already. Do you want to buy some erotic batteries? They're leaking at the end. <laughs> they're a steal these, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, fucking hell. Well, if Basic Instinct was the fuck of the century, then this belated sequel is the I'm sorry that doesn't usually happen of the day. <laughs> okay, so Basic Instinct 2. Andy, do you have... Uh, I Well, I actually picked this episode. Yeah. And I do have, like... I, I like the first films quite significantly. Yeah. Um, this is my first time watching the sequel, though. Do you have any background with this series of films? Uh, no, no. And um, because it was your suggestion the other week, I uh, decided to order Basic Instinct 1 on Blu-ray because I hadn't actually seen it. I think it's the only Paul Verhoeven film, English language film, that I haven't actually seen. Yeah. And... Yeah, it hadn't arrived by the time I went to watch this film. So I have no context of the original film. Not that I think it matters too much. Because <laughs> I can, no. I, you know, I've seen little bits of it and I can imagine what a Paul Verhoeven version of this idea and the character of Catherine Trammell would be like. So I can kind of imagine uh, what the contrast would be. Yeah. And all the way through watching this film, uh, Basic Instinct 2, Risk Addiction, uh, as it's sometimes known. Wait, what? <laughs> that, is it known as... It's called Risk Addiction in some territories, yeah. Oh, right. But even whilst watching the film, I was just thinking to myself, yeah, this scene would work way better if Paul Verhoeven directed it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest, like, I actually didn't watch Basic Instinct for the first time until... Only about five years ago. Yeah. And I've seen it a few times since, and it gets better every time I watch it. The first time I watched it, I was like, well, that was a little bit unbelievable. But it's Paul <laughs> Verhoeven. You know, it's the kind of film that he does brilliantly. And every time I've watched it, it's just got better and better. I love all of the, the sillier elements to it, but it's so vibrant and so colourful. Yeah. And um, as you can expect from Paul Verhoeven, and this is like the antithesis, really. The moment yeah. that Paul Verhoeven said, ah, nah, to the sequel... Is the moment that this film should have ceased to exist in any yeah. way, shape, or form. But here we are. I actually picked this one because I thought it was going to be like... It's one of those famously terrible films. It's got yeah. a very low IMDb rating. Um, I remember it coming out, and I remember it just getting absolutely slaughtered by everybody. I thought, oh, well, that'll be a fun film to watch. A real good, bad movie, you know? Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was just kind of dull. Shame on you, Gareth. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, well, I had seen a supercut of this film, yeah. but I won't tell you what kind of supercut. Oh, mm. super uncut. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I won't tell you where I watched it. Pornhub. Oh. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> but it is one of those films, honestly, you can get yeah. the best scenes of this film. And they're not even good sex scenes, but if you yeah. want to, if you're that way inclined, Pornhub. Basic yeah. Instinct 2, you'll be fine. You've got the yeah. gist. But I do remember when this film came out. Because I was just in awe of this is a basic instinct film. And it stars David Morrissey. David Morrissey. The dude had just, you know, recently finished playing Gordon Brown. Yeah, he just finished he playing just, Gordon he, Brown. He played Gordon you. Brown a few years previously. <laughs> and he's known for playing grumpy, stoic figures. Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of like budget Liam Neeson. <laughs> I kind of feel like Michael Caton Jones, who directed this film, wanted him to play it like Liam Neeson because obviously yeah. Michael Caton Jones had, had uh, used him in one of his previous films, Rob Roy, which is the other not Braveheart film. <laughs> it kind of, yeah. that, that, that film <laughs> yeah. got kind of left in the dust when Braveheart came out because they're kind of it similar. It, they are, but it, it has, Braveheart has a, s a series of amazing kills because Mel Gibson is a real gore hound. Yeah. But yeah. Um, Rob Roy's got an amazing kill in it as well. Um, yeah. 
the film's all right. Like, yeah, it's, it's one of those bad. okay films. Yeah, um, but it's got an amazing kill in it. Um, the yeah. moment that you see it, you know exactly which one it is. But yeah, just the fact that David Morrissey was in this film. That, that was the big like question mark for me as well. I liked David Morrissey, and I yeah. liked him at the time as well. I liked some of his TV work that I'd seen, and with him being you know a Liverpool lad, he was. Uh, I always know him as like a Northwest local. Yeah. And I was like, oh, excited to see him going up in the world when he was cast. And then the film came out, and it was just like, ugh, yeah. what is I this? Think, I, I think he thought this was going to be his big break into feature films as like a yeah. leading man. Yeah, it didn't quite work out like that, unfortunately. But um, no, yeah, it, it feels very direct-to-video. That's exactly how it feels. Even the fact that you know, he shares top billing with Sharon Stone, it's just a very odd mismatch of elements yeah well to, to jump into like some background context for this uh, we, we you know we have to talk about the first film basic yeah. instinct it's a paul verhoeven classic you know it's a joe estrahouse screenplay who was like the anytime there was an erotic film out in the 80s and early 90s i mean even to mid 90s it normally had joe estrahouse's name on it somewhere you know, he was the guy that was involved in writing the majority of these kind of films, always about cops or those type of figures involved with seductive and dangerous women. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're usually Michael Douglas films as well. <laughs> yes, that is true, yeah. I mean, we don't really get these kind of films anymore, and I, and I do wish we did, to be honest. I think that there's a place for the erotic thriller that in cinema that we don't get anymore. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I did read something about this film, um, that was written at the time, thinking, uh, saying, because of this film drops the ball so hard in that department. Someone wrote it in the context: Do we actually need films like this, this anymore? If we've got Pornhub, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I mean, that is it, isn't it? Pornhub yeah. killed the erotic thriller. Yeah, you know what? So, I've said this about someone before on the show, but I've always maintained that Brian De Palma is a great substitute for Alfred Hitchcock. He does Alfred Hitchcock without the subtext. Yeah. All of the subtext is text. Yeah. Well, I think Paul Verhoeven does a great Brian De Palma homage to Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> but he drops Brian De Palma's subtext and makes it text. It's just so in your face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It is very Hitchcocky in this film. It's obviously like, uh, in the first film, it's obviously like uh, rooted in the location, that San Francisco uh, location. Uh, the music as well by Jerry Goldsmith plays a lot of like homage to Hitchcock while also playing homage to film noir. And there's a lot of threads in his music that come back later in his LA Confidential score, for example. Yeah. That start yeah. with Basic Instinct. But Basic Instinct is a very, it was a very successful and incredibly successful film. Yeah. And uh, they wanted to make a sequel to it from the moment that it released, essentially, from the mm -hmm. moment that it climaxed all over audiences. <laughs> People were clamoring for more, more, more. This wasn't just a one-night stand. Yeah. There's a lot more jokes like that in this episode, uh, guys, so buckle in, or strap on, if you will. Uh, have you got any ice pick jokes? Oh, you know what? I haven't, but let's get to the point. So, so anyway, so moving on, obviously the producers, they've got dollar signs for eyes and they want to make um, a sequel, but it, it actually takes a long time. <laughs> it's in gestation for a long time. Yeah. Um, so much so I think Sharon Stone had a second boob job. <laughs> <laughs> 
We'll mention that uh, later on when it comes to uh, the awards that this film got. <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah, so it's weird, I would say. Like, there's been several filmmakers involved over the years as well who came close to uh, to being part of the film. For example, John McTiernan was yep. at one point attached to direct the sequel. That didn't happen. He wanted Benjamin Burt. Uh, sorry, Benjamin Burt? Benjamin, <laughs> Bratt. Benjamin <laughs> Bratt. Yeah. Benjamin Bratt, Bratt to play the male lead. But Sharon Stone did not approve. Yeah, she said he wasn't a good enough actor. She was saving herself for this film, obviously. This was the, the distilled version of that that she wanted. Yeah. I mean, and other people that were offered the role but didn't take it. Robert Downey Jr. was offered the role of Dr. Michael Glass. I mean, you have to be... It's like the worst time of his life. He's in rehab. Yeah. Nobody will touch him in Hollywood <laughs> at all. And you offer him a film and he goes, actually... I've got other things going on. I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm, I'm staying here in rehab. So Robert Downey Jr. says no. Aaron Eckhart says no as well. He's another one that's involved. And other directors that were considered were David Cronenberg and a name that many of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, Lee Tamahari as well was also touted to direct. I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I think that one would have had more flash and more um, personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and more camp. Much more of a jazzle. And there was also a lawsuit that blighted the film's production, which I think is why it never quite happened with the likes of John McTernan or other filmmakers that flirted with the role. Yeah. Between the aptly named Andrew G. Vajner and uh Vajna. mario casar yeah Vajna, i should say yeah. i just wanted to really put the uh i think we mentioned that on the badge <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah what a name that guy's been involved in like loads of films that i've that were like my childhood yeah i'm sure we uh, mentioned him in our, in our terminator salvation yes uh, i think so c2 pictures again the notorious c2 pictures and yeah so th there was a court case going on between them where sharon stone filed a lawsuit saying that she was owed 14 million dollars for a commitment to the sequel even if the movie didn't get made so i, I think did he call it pay or play i yeah, think with did, those, yeah. what, th those ones mm -hmm. in 2004 it was settled with stone agreeing to make the sequel yeah, that really brings us up to this sequel. You know what I would say is the most amazing thing about this film is it's probably the only film in existence ever where Stan Collymore has top billing in the final credits. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah. I mean, again, I'm talking about somebody else here. This is a man who at the time was um, in the... UK press quite significantly, and I don't mean to dredge up the past, but he was in the UK press quite significantly because he had been caught dogging. <laughs> with, with and I reckon Sharon this, Stone. yeah, <laughs> that would be some like real high profile yeah. dogging going yeah. on. It's actually just a bit of film promotion. Yeah. <laughs> so the press was dragging him through the dirt at the time because of his sexual escapades. And I would still say that Basic Instinct 2 is probably the low point of his career. <laughs> He probably looks back on this time as, oh, fuck, this is the year I did Basic Instinct 2. I don't think he remembers the dog and <laughs> this has no. superseded it. But yeah, so Basic Instinct 2, Andy, what did you think about this very, very blue... I mean, it is a blue movie in every sense. Yeah. I mean, I know Michael Caton Jones is quoted as saying that he only took this film because he was completely broke and there were no other options for him. And he knew that the film was a poison chalice, but he took it anyway because he just needed the money. Yeah. That says everything, really, doesn't it? I mean, the thing is, as well, like, if you look at Michael Caton Jones's 
very strange career. Yeah, yeah, it's very weird. Even so, it's like, if you're offered this, Basic Instinct 2, you probably take it and see what you can do with it, you know? You look yeah. at the first film. I I understand why this is a film that he jumped at, even, like, as you mentioned, at that time in his career. Yeah. But you kind of snap up the opportunity to do do this in my opinion but yeah. at the same time i don't know how the film ended up at his doorstep after as we've said mentioned before the people that were involved previously with the likes of john mcturnan and david cronenberg and lee tamahari <laughs> yeah i think i think it's just literally no one else would take it yeah and i think it was now or never for the producers and he needed a hit yeah and maybe thought at the at the start of it he could turn it around but due to certain circumstance just couldn't do it i've got a few quotes from him that i managed to find from imdb and i'll, I'll intersperse those throughout whilst we're talking about the film but it just sounded like the whole thing was just a non-starter and you can really tell because i think this is a film that looks on the surface of it like a competent movie but and i think especially from the filmmaking side of it you can just sense that everyone just gave up everybody but sharon stone in, in a way she's <laughs> the odd one out yes um, yeah everyone else is in a different movie to her mm-hmm. it makes her stand out but in the complete wrong way mm-hmm. she's still playing it like she's in a paul verhoeven movie but no one else is playing it like that <laughs> so it really yeah just um yeah, it's just a, a weird, strangely dull, it's like a narcoleptic film. Mm-hmm. It's just got no pacing or urgency or it's so... Whew, it's that kind of a film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's as I mentioned from the top, it has all of the personality of a uh, made-for-TV, ITV crime drama, and not one of the good ones. No. It has that look, it has that feel, there's no real sense of, like, pomp. There's nothing really that I look at it and go, oh, that that's where the budget went. No, <laughs> even though a, it wasn't... It was a $70 million film as well. There's no action, or not, not that, that Basic Instincts was action-heavy. I would say that the action scenes were, like, the sex scenes are shot like action scenes, and there yeah. is, like, moments, but you get the sense that it's a it's like it's a rich film it's it's got like the in terms of the aesthetic it's got depth it's got color it's got vibrancy it feels like a big production for the story that it's telling this one feels like really small and yeah it's mute yeah yeah that's it it's very mute i think that comes part and parcel with um we went through a period in the noughties where anytime you got a film that was based in the uk or based in london it had this kind of filtered desaturated blue look to it yeah yeah. i feel like this film <laughs> takes that on board to the point of parody it's a very dull looking film and part of that reason is this is a film about people sitting around talking about sex yeah basic instinct is about people hunting each other michael douglas's character sharon stone they're playing a game of chess around each other and they're clearly trying to trap each other in in various ways and it's like each scene between them is it's like a firecracker of a scene. Whereas this one is just like... I wrote down that it has all of the lazy blocking of a George uh, Lucas Star Wars prequel. It yeah. goes from one scene of two people sat down talking motionless to another scene of two people sat down talking motionless to another scene of two people sat down talking motionless. 
it's the kind of thing as a director that you look at and go, okay, how do we get these characters moving? How do we make the scene more enjoyable to watch? There's no story being told with the camera. There's no like power play at work here. It's just your average shot, reverse shot. It's like basic yeah. coverage. And it, I feel like that's that's the issue is it has no personality this way. Yeah. Maybe that comes with transporting it to, to London as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's. I think there's there's a number of things with that. I mean, interestingly, because we've brought him up several times on this show, this is actually the last film that had any kind of involvement from Adrian Biddle as the the DOP. He was the film's original DOP, and he's credited oh, yeah. as additional photography in the end credits. And he actually died. He had a heart attack very early on in production. And his role was quickly filled by Eula Pados, who's actually had a rather successful career in um, other films following this. They're, they're doing the new Planet of the Apes film right now. Yes, yeah, that's so right. So they've yeah. obviously gone on to do much bigger and better things. So there must be something in that, the fact that he is a last-minute replacement yeah. DOP whilst they're shooting. And also, <laughs> you're taking over from a cinematographer who, to be fair, with no disrespect, considering he died in production, didn't really have much flair in most of his work. So there's definitely that. And I think given the the struggles that, that, that were on set, the director just chose to shoot it in a very basic way as well, just to get it done. Yeah. I think this film was just a film that needed to get done rather than <laughs> anything else. Yeah. Um, That's what it feels like, yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say about Adrian Biddle that the best filmmaker that he ever worked with and the best footage he ever shot was everything he did with Ridley Scott. He did some wonderful film uh, cinematography with Ridley Scott, but it's obviously it's Ridley Scott. He, yeah. he, the guy the guy is an eye and is. His, his films have a consistent look throughout his career, regardless of who, who's the cinematographer. But yeah, I'd say he's the kind of guy that at this time, if you wanted your film to have that kind of desaturated look, he's probably the guy for that. That explains really for this, because I didn't know that going into this episode that he yeah. died making this. That kind of explains both the look of this film, but also the fact it's, it feels like it's an imitation of that as well by somebody yeah. who's had zero time to prepare. Because there is some of his footage in the film. I don't know which parts, but obviously he's had to match a style because they've mm. already started. You know, it's one of those films, it looks competent, but there's no flair to it. There's no all. personality. There's no shots where I would say like, it's jarringly awful. It, what's no. jarringly awful is like when you compare it to Basic Instinct, like I did before this episode, like yeah. side by side. That makes it like stand out in a very poor light. But on its own terms, it's like from shot to shot. It's not like you would point that out and say, "Oh, that's that's an awful, laughable composition." Here. No, 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 no. Uh, that, that I think that's the thing that, that this film has had a, a reputation for being, you know, one of the worst films ever made. But when you actually look at it, now it, it's just very, you know, average to below average, you know. It's very it's just, dull. Yeah, it's just, yeah, there's there's no there's no spark. It's very mechanical. Yeah. And yeah, it's just it's just a going through the motions film. Yeah, and like you say, Sharon Stone is in a different film. Yeah. And I kind of want to see the film that she's acting in <laughs> rather yeah. than the film that we got. One of the things, though, that I will say is particularly terrible is probably the script. Yeah. I want to just like repeat a line, one of the opening lines of the of the film that really explains just how bad this script is. So 
We have Stan Collymore in a car. He's been drugged. Catherine Trammell, Sharon Stone, is driving the car, which eventually leads to his death. And Stan Collymore says, guess what? And she says, what? He says, I can't move. <laughs> and she says, well, you don't have to. You're in a car. <laughs> I was like, well, it's really like, oh, sparks between you. Uh, I just thought, like, what's the wit in that? You don't have to. You're in a car. It's like, what? Yeah. What the fuck is this? That's really the, the worst line in the film, but there are a few, like, clunkers as it goes oh, on. There's some wonderful David Thewlis ones as well. I think one of the very first lines he says, I, don't, I, I wrote it down and ringed it and highlighted it because it's like, it's it's wonderfully bad. And I think if it, if this was in a, in a Paul Verhoeven film, it would work fine. But it's when he, when he says, I want that cunt in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I got to say as well about uh, very quickly, just about that character. It's clear that this script was not particularly written for London. It could have been transplanted anywhere, and I think it probably was many times during its gestation. But his character is called Roy Washburn. That yeah. is the most like non-English name I've ever heard before. That is the most American English name. Hi, I'm Roy Washburn. Considering it's set in, in England, even though it feels like an ITV drama, there's very little that's English about it in a way. I think it's because, yeah, it's so mute. You don't get any of the colour, sights and sounds of London. I, 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 the other thing I would say, like from a filmmaking point of view, obviously the editing is very sloppy. It's very slow. Like They've not tried to up the pace in the edit either. They've literally just put the film together. They are. You know, there's some crossfades. That says something when the best of the editing is. This film has some excellent crossfades. I don't know about you, but... I felt like the sound mix was odd as well. Everything felt really quiet. Yes, yeah. Everyone um, was like talking like they were slightly half asleep. I had to turn this way up to 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 listen to it. Actually, yeah, it was, um, re- it was a very quiet film. There was a moment I've had my headphones on. I'm listening to it on my computer, and there was a moment I clicked on a YouTube video straight afterwards, and it was just so loud that it scared the yeah. shit out of me. <laughs> you know, so. Um, <laughs> Like I said to you uh, uh, before we started recording, this is not a good film to watch late at night. No, you, no. I mean, unless you want, you want to sleep. If, yeah, if you want to sleep, watch Basic Instinct 2. Yeah, it's got that kind of like ASMR quality. Yeah, yeah. Of people talking really low. Hi. You're Hi. listening to ASMR. <laughs> but <laughs> I will say as well, like the music, John Murphy, a composer I really like. And, you know, I've had in some minor capacity, had some interaction with. Yeah. I like the guy, he's from Liverpool, I'm from Liverpool, and I've followed his career and listened to his music, regardless of what kind of music it is. This was actually a soundtrack he sent to me, like, years and years ago, the Basic Instinct 2 one. And so I'd heard it before, and there's a couple of tracks in the version that he sent to me that are, like, not available, or even used in the film. However, it's very clear what's been used as a temp score for this one. I would say... His score's probably at its best when it's repeating the Jerry Goldsmith riffs. Yeah. Otherwise, it's kind of like, it's just unremarkable. Other moments where it suddenly becomes a Bourne film, and it sounds like, even though they're walking just through a London street, it sounds like they're in Tangiers or something. You have like little, little bongo I drums mean, going. Speaking and... of someone who's written music for film as well, I can imagine this film would have been really difficult to score for because when you are presented with a film that has such little energy 
in either the yeah. performances, the way that it's shot and put together in the edit. When you're presented with a film like that, and I've been presented with more, more than a few films that, that, have, uh, that have had those issues, it's such a fucking hard. It's so hard. It's 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 such a, an uphill struggle. By the way, just so you know, I'm going to be uh, clipping out you saying over and over again, "It's so hard." I'm going to put that right <laughs> at the top so of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so hard. Oh, it's oh. so hard. <laughs> but. It's an uphill struggle writing music for films like that because you've got absolutely nothing to work with and you are doing all the heavy lifting. And I'm quite often, because there's so little going on, yeah. if you do try and do any of that, it really stands out in the wrong way, which I think is what happens with this film because there are moments where the, the music's really trying to yeah. push the film along, but because the rest of the film ain't, ain't going, it does what film music shouldn't do, which is draw attention to itself. Yes, in, in, yeah. in a bad way. Another film as well that I felt like it clearly riffs on, and it's clearly been tempted to, is the Unbreakable score by James Newman Howard. Yeah, these two references they sound about right for the time that this film was made as well. Yeah. But I would say even in the individual score that I listened to, it's not a great John Murphy score. No, there's nothing really iconic about, it, but there's also very little of his character in it. I'm glad that his career has come back around in a big way. But what have you got to work with? To be honest, considering the the amount of talent in this film both in front of and behind the camera yes yeah this is not anybody on a good day no no that's true <laughs> it's not that any of these people are particularly awful like you know they're all good to great people involved in this film mm-hmm. it's an off day for everybody <laughs> this is this is a film that's so off the boil that it's not even as so bad it's good film because no. with so bad it's good films it's a terrible film but there's usually some flair to it yeah somebody's yeah. doing something that that's making it that way but this film doesn't have that at all it's like the antithesis no so bad it's good film <laughs> it's it's so bad it's bad it's so bad it's bad yeah that, yeah that is exactly what it is i mean even so like i look at the cast list and there are some good names involved in this um as i mentioned stan collymore <laughs> no, no, but, i mean we have david tulis david morrissey i like there's hugh dancy and there's um charlotte rampling uh even like neil maskell who's yeah. a you know, an actor that's gone on to have a great career. He's in it for a few scenes. Yeah. Indira Varma. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But I would say even so, these are people that at that time were more known for their UK TV work. Yeah. Than they yeah. were for their Hollywood films or anything like that. No. no. I would say like, the thing is about the first Basic Instinct film is that, like, you can't take a step without falling over the dick of a big-name actor kind of thing. <laughs> There's loads of names and loads of faces, loads of Paul Verhoeven types of names and faces that, you know, you see. And going back to the discussion about it being very Hitchcockian, bar a couple of exceptions, and obviously very early on in his career and Frenzy, Yes, yeah. most of his films are predominantly set in the States. Yeah. And that's the natural environment for a Hitchcockian-style thriller. And I kind of feel like the London setting, I don't think it works for the type of film they're trying to make and also the type of character that Catherine Trammell is. She's a no. character that really belongs in a US environment. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the first one's set in San Francisco. It could probably easily work in LA or yep. New York, somewhere like that. You know, the thing is, I could say that if you want to even go out and make it a bit more exotic, you could go and set it in like Venice 
set it in Italy yeah, somewhere. Yeah, you I, know? I don't feel like London is exotic enough. Exactly, yeah. Especially this time when they, yeah, like you're saying, they do shoot London in a very subdued way. I mean, mm-hmm. even, they even managed to make Soho look boring. Yeah, um. I mean, that's the thing as well. It's like, it's supposed. It, I feel like it's supposed to be this, like, there's some vague idea of, oh, well, the film starts out, it's very blue, it's very controlled, there's very little colour because these are the characters we're dealing with. And then, as this character, his descent into madness begins, we get a little bit more colour, we get into the CD, CD Soho, but the thing is, when we get to CD Soho, it's still just very boring looking, but there's yeah. a couple of neon lights, <laughs> you know? The street that they, they shoot that particular part of the film in, in Soho, I've walked up there many, many times because it's the start of Berwick Street. So as soon as you get through that weird seedy little bit, all the rec- well, it used to be anyway, all the record shops were yeah. on Berwick Street. So I used to go up there loads. And it's, a re- you know, it's really, really seedy, but it's very colourful. It's a yeah. very colourful place around that little part of Soho. And uh, they just completely failed to capture that. <laughs> you know, the um, thing is as well, like I always think, when you have these types of scenes in films that are based in the likes of London, you know, when it's like, oh, the seedy underbelly of London. And I always yeah. think to myself, that always takes me out of the scene. I always think they're probably about 100 yards from a Greg's, wherever they are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's, a, yeah. there's, a, there's a Greg's bakery around that corner somewhere. Yeah. I often, like, in my mind, then picture, like, Catherine Trammell walking past a TGI Fridays. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, because Soho is so connected to the West End. Like, I know that the yeah. uh, the theatre where Le- where Les Mis played is just a bit further down, like in the opposite direction down that street. Yeah. So, like, I can see her doing a like cross leg thing. You know, when she uncrosses her legs, like in a Nando's. <laughs> Would you like to perhaps try my <laughs> spicy hot wing? There's a, there's a very cheap. And cheerful Chinese buffet chain in that area of London called Mr. Woo's. And they can imagine <laughs> doing that in Mr. Woo's. Oh, dear. Would you like to sample the buffet, Dr. Glass? Yeah, I just for me, it's not really the right... I hear the beef strips are rather nice at oh. this time of year. <laughs> why, why this time of year? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to chew on my egg roll? It's uh, it's slightly overdone. I haven't showered. It's a bit chewy. <laughs> yeah, I just I, f- I feel like having a British cast and this setting, it's just not right for this kind of film. I don't think it works, yeah. and I don't think it works for the eroticism either because canal, the yeah. British don't really have. I mean, it would be better if it was set in Paris or somewhere like or yeah, yeah exactly, Paris yeah. or Italy, where there's much more of a reputation for romanticism and eroticism britain now we're famously uh no sex please we're british it doesn't work in the same way <laughs> it's like perfectly um, described by Catherine trammell in that scene she kind of like has a very tense moment with the uh with david morrissey's character dr glass she describes his fantasies and it's like do you think about fucking me and all this? Uh, sorry, I said that really sexually then. Do yeah, you think yeah. about fucking me? <sighs> but she then goes on to describe like the most vanilla sex ever. It's like, what is it? Am I on top? Are you on top? My face in the pillow? And I'm like, this is all just a bit like normal. Yeah. <laughs> you know? We're talking missionary. <laughs> missionary. Doggy. Me on top of her. It's again, it's that, it's that Garth Marangi thing. We did all of the positions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Missionary, hair on top. I'm going to say this now. I'm... Um... I'm a little bit disturbed that I saw David Morris's bum. I'm disturbed. I was. I said my Bauer and Wilkins headphones that I was wearing <laughs> were not made to hear the sound of David Morris's ball slap against someone's ass. <laughs> he is um, so miscast in this yeah. role. He's just not sexy. Even at the time when it was when it was first released, I'm like, eh, eh, yeah. David Morrissey in Basic Instinct Two. Calm down. David Morrissey in Basic Instinct 2. <laughs> you got to be fucking joking. <laughs> they should have said it in Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah, exactly. Hey, it's Catherine Trammell. <laughs> She's fucking nuts. <laughs> Off a rocker. <laughs> she can drive the car into Albert Duck as well. <laughs> <laughs> Straight into the, uh, the fucking this morning, like, <laughs> yeah. little map of Britain at the Alpha of Fred's weather. <laughs> Lands right in the middle of it. <laughs> oh my god, that's that's a reference that nobody uh, outside of the UK will get on the podcast. Uh, Just as Fred's doing his weather report, car comes hurtling off Albert Dock, and <laughs> hey, I, I saw I have an orgy in the Beatles story. <laughs> I think there, Ringo Starr, <laughs> in the Costa. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, David Morrissey feels incredibly miscast. And there's something that I would say about Basic Instinct. Like, Michael Douglas, he's not somebody that you look at and think, well, I don't, and think sexy. But he plays it sexy. He's got that charge to him. He's got that energy. He's matching Sharon Stone in every scene that, that they're in together kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just like battle for, not just like on a, on a level of the characters battling out, but it feels like almost the actors are kind of thing to to see like who can dominate the scene. Yeah, he, he he's one of those actors who had that wild-eyed craziness to him. Yeah. It's interesting that we mentioned Braveheart. I think the only other person for me that could have played that male leading role part in a film like this maybe would have been Mel Gibson back in the day. Yeah, yeah I can see that, yeah. Because they both have that kind of slightly unhinged quality that you need. Yeah. Like, you don't know whether they're going to shag you or assault a female cop. Yeah, and, and David Morrissey plays it so straight and so seriously. Yeah. So stoically. That's the problem with the script, though, as well. Like, misjudged casting as well. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it goes to the direction. And I, again, I just think there was no investment in the direction because yeah. you've got this established character. Everyone really should be matching the style. And that's why it feels like she's in a completely different film to everyone else. Mm. The whole film was mismatched to that character. Not sure whether you've seen this, but I um, did manage to find a couple of choice quotes from the director, which maybe explains why this happened. So I've got this quote saying, years later, when he was asked about the film, director Michael Caton Jones said, I reread the script and knew I had to redo it. I later learned the script had been around Hollywood for years and the movie was a deal film, which means nobody really gives a monkey how it turns out, but a lot of people make money as soon as it's made. It was a disaster. I wanted to get out, but I'd have been sued to death. Sharon Stone lives in a zone inside her own head. She'd have to do everything to get up the greasy pole and having reached a certain age, uh, then wonders what to do. It's all about insecurity and fear 
and to show that she was the star, she'd turn up late, not know her lines, and she'd make appointments to have her nails done on the day of filming. There was no point in getting into a fight with her, though. Okay. He says, I remember coldly thinking, this is the worst filmmaking experience of my life. <laughs> okay, so that explains a lot as well, and that explains a lot in terms of like where, where you would say that some of the budget's gone. It's like seems like the budget's gone into paying a lot of people a yeah. lot of big bucks. I, I did watch the uh, the sort of fluff piece entertainment making of documentary yeah. just before we recorded this and it's very much uh, everyone just saying what's you know what's scripted yeah trying to be nice and then sharon stone's just off on one <laughs> yeah you can tell it's her project i get that that she comes from like that hollywood background with that but i also wonder given the whole background of this film with the lawsuit if it was one of those okay to finally have this in the rear view i'll do the film but it'll be on my terms and in my way Kind of thing, yeah. taking a little bit of control back. I think so. It feels like a midlife crisis film as well. It does, yeah. Especially if you watch that thing, because she keeps talking about like, oh, someone was looking at my tits on set, and it was like, I was like, everyone's thinking I'm hot, and it's like, <laughs> oh, Sharon, um, <laughs> it's yeah. I don't think everyone's invested in the film in the same way that you are. It's a shame. It's rich. One of those kind of like, oh, it's kind of painful things, really. I understand as well with Sharon Stone because she comes from a period of Hollywood where she, on her own terms clawed away up and yeah. became one of the biggest names in Hollywood. She won the Oscar as well yeah. for an amazing performance in Casino. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, she was still working in a period of time where once you became a person of a certain age, Hollywood had a habit of kind of discarding you to other types of films. <laughs> and because she was an actress that was known for being beautiful, once she starts to show a few lines on her face or a few wrinkles, there is a noticeable decline in the types of roles that she's being offered. Yeah, yeah. And it moves into something else entirely. And she found herself doing a lot more trash films. Yeah, I would say even like in the likes of Catwoman, a terrible, terrible film. Yeah. She's still like bringing some energy to it. You oh, know? yeah. And she's still giving it something. So it's just a, it's just unfortunate for her in that way. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this episode, Cine Fan Art. So Cine Fan Art has a passion for all things movies, from the Great White Shark to reaching 88 miles power in your favourite DeLorean. Cine Fan Art delivers unique movie-related designs for a wide variety of merchandise, from t-shirts to shower curtains. And yes, there's also a design for Psycho. To find Cine Fan Art, go to Redbubble and search for the term Cine Fan Art. Select any product on the page, and this will direct you to a product page. Then you can scroll down to the CineFanArt1 link next to the follow button and you'll be directed to all of the designs CineFanArt has created. It's worth it, believe me. And if you're unable to find it that way, you can always just click on the link that's in our episode description. Thank you very much. Now back to the show. I will say, the film's biggest fault for me as an erotic thriller... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, moving into this. The film's biggest fault for me. And I like I like an erotic thriller. I do. Yeah. It's the type of film that I watch and I think, ah, oh, they don't make these anymore. You know, mm. I, I like your Joe Estrahouse films. Even like the bad ones that have turned up on other podcasts, like how did this get made and the like. But the thing that's its biggest fault is it's not horny enough. No. And I mean that in like it's the filmmaking, it's the acting, it's the story that they're going with. There's something about like Basic Instinct One, and I wrote down in my notes. That this film, number two, it's... Is a number two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's both anemic and dry. And, I, I mean, obviously every sense of the word dry. But you look at what Paul Verhoeven did with Basic Instinct, and it's like that film has 
heat, it has atmosphere. Every scene has texture to it. And this clear friction between the characters that's being played up. It's not just in the sex scenes. It's not just in the lighting. You know, it's not just this whole idea of light and dark and sex and death and stuff like that going on in every scene where, you know, the sex scenes themselves are filmed like they're action scenes of their own. This one, it just feels like everything is just functional. Yeah. As I say, like in sex terms, it's the missionary <laughs> of, <laughs> you know, it's just the like kind of this is. It's the coverage version of this movie, you know, like everything's just being shot for coverage. There's yeah. no real sense of identity or any sense of friction or spark, you know. There's no, there's no tension there, and I think that's what an erotic thriller needs as well. But yeah, so it's a very dry film. It needed to be what I'm saying. It needed to be bloody and it needed to be moist. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was um, reading an article on. Um bloody disgusting by horror queers and their their headline for it was called boring men and bisexual erasure in basic instinct 2 yeah they described the film as being a boner killer yeah yeah because Catherine's bisexuality in the first film was very much a thing and in in this film everything's so reserved and they basically made her a straight character and there's nothing particularly kinky going mm-hmm. on or anything. So yeah, where's the kink? It's all just no sex, please, we're British. Yeah, it really is. And I don't even think it's the character's age. No, no, I don't. Because I, I actually all. think there's something weird going on with how they've styled her. Mm-hmm. Whoever styled her has gone out of the way to make her look as unsexy as possible at times. Yeah. Like they're giving her weird outfits to wear, very weird haircuts. Yeah, it's got that Courtney Cox in Scream 3 tiny fringe yeah. thing going on. Yeah, like someone's done a bowl cut on her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a bowl cut, though. It's more like a plate cut. I don't know why, but they've kind of made her look like the character that she plays, um, is it Ginger, in Casino, when she's mm-hmm. going through a druggy phase. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind yeah. of made it look like that when the character's supposed to be like unsexy, like to show her decline in that film. Yeah. They've made her look like that in... In this one, she's supposed to be really sexy and, and a, a seductress. Yeah, they've really um, dropped the ball when presenting this character. Yeah, they mention in one line, like, oh, she had a fling with another woman. And the film's not about that. Like, no. Basic Instincts 1 is about that. That's like, it's yeah. a part of the character. It's yeah. um, it's all the way through the film. We have the uh, her girlfriend, who's all the way through that film. In this one... It's like they describe it away, like almost in a way, like, oh, well, we have to do this. It's just, uh, you know, we're just hitting the beat so that we fulfill that obligation. We're obliged to do this. So they mention in one line that she she had a fling or had sex with one of the previous characters who died, who was a woman. And that's it. That's all that's mentioned of it. It's like, it's just, we fulfilled that obligation. We can move on to the to normal sex now. Yeah. Well, from the, from the bloody disgusting article, it's, it's almost like, even though time's passed and things have meant to have got gotten better, it's almost like gone the other way around where people have gone, oh, we can't make this serial killer character queer. That yeah. would look bad. Whereas it's actually, it's it's having the opposite effect. Where it's like, no queer people can't be serial killers or play weird, twisted characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's no yeah, fun for you guys. That combined with the British setting, and again, yeah, how they've presented her, um, looks wise, and how they've shot her in a very flat way. Uh, yeah, wardrobe as well. Like the sexiest of coats is nothing like 
brown leather. None of this works. I want the palette for my wardrobe to be poo in this scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like Eyes Wide Shut where Stanley Kubrick led everyone to believe that he was making an erotic thriller. And outside of that original opening shot where she's uh, where Nicole McKidman's getting undressed, it's like, there, there's your erotic shot. The rest of the film's not going to be sexy at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like he's done this. Um, it's about Tom Cruise being cooked by a dream. Yeah, I feel like this is the uh, basic instinct done in the style of Eyes Wide Shut, and that's not the way to go about doing the film like basic instinct. I would say as well, like, the other unforgivable thing that it does with the character is that it makes her fucking stupid. Like, yeah. she's anything but stupid in the in the first one. The first one's a very silly film in terms of yeah. the story that it's telling. It gets very outlandish, but because it's Paul Verhoeven, it feels right for that kind of film. Yeah. But um, even though it does silly things, it never makes Catherine Trammell feel silly. She's always a threat, potential threat. Is she? Yeah. You didn't see that kind of thing all the way through, and she always feels like she's vying for control. I would say in that one as well, there's a sense of... Is she, isn't she, all the way through, yeah. but also there's a sense of she's gaining control, losing control, gaining control. She's never not on top in Basic Instinct 2 and in every sense, but she's never not on top yeah. of everything. She's always in control, but she's also a fucking dumbass. Straight from the off in like the first scene, maybe sorry, the second scene where she's uh, she's crashed a car into the Thames, into the most clear Barbados blue Thames water that I've ever <laughs> seen before in my yeah. life. I mean that is a that like the, there wasn't enough horse bones in that water really. <laughs> yeah. And that is a genuine thing folks. The yeah. the whole of the Thames riverbed is is lined by horse bones because there was a glue factory on the Thames. Uh, and so even now from 100 years ago people often have to walk through the uh, the front of the Thames and uh, pick bones up off the uh, off the ground. They're yeah. just everywhere. Anyway, that kind of sums up how awful that water is. People fall into it and just die through like toxin shock yeah but yeah so this character there's something that i can't make sense of so stan collymore is a footballer who she's romantically involved in she's drugged him so that he can't move he can't feel she then drives the car purposefully into the thames yeah i think with the intention of killing him obviously because he's yeah. drugged so that he can't move the car's in the thames but then in a scene where only two of them are in she tries to get him out of his seatbelt before abandoning him it's like why would you do that then yeah why would you try and get him out of the seatbelt nobody else is watching this scene there aren't any cctv cameras underwater hmm. i don't get why she would try and let him go if her intention was to kill him anyway and then in the immediate next scene when she's talking to the coppers she freely admits that she was drugged off her face when she drove the car into the thames killing this footballer which straight away is just an open and shut manslaughter case. You're going to jail for a very yeah. long time. Yeah. Then they act like, for the rest of the film, they act like they haven't got her on anything. Yeah. There's this vague thing about a murder charge in the background, but she's just freely walking the streets. It's like, yeah. it's okay. Acting she's very suspiciously. <laughs> yeah, she's already admitted to dangerous driving resulting in the death of someone. She's going yeah. to jail for like 10 years, whether yeah. she likes it or not. You've got her. Move on. <laughs> I don't get that. It's like the first scene of the film. 
and they trip themselves up. Yeah. So yeah, that that that, that did my head in while I was watching this because I was like, Captain shouting at the characters like, you got David Thewlis going, I want this cunt in jail, and he, yeah. every time he's like, oh, I really want this this bitch, but with like a Cornish accent. I felt like he was doing Welsh. I don't know. Oh, it could be. Yeah, it could be yeah. Welsh. It took me a while to work it out. <laughs> I wanted to reach into the film and shake him and just say, dude, you've got her. Yeah. You, you got her in the first scene. <laughs> yeah, but she's you got fucking that lawyer. <laughs> she's got that lawyer. I don't think the film understands how... She just keeps um, flashing a ninja at everyone and getting out. That's also why I feel like this film was written for anywhere, because that kind of thing would maybe a bit more be a bit more credible in a an American judicial scene, but it doesn't work in a in a British setting. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I need to talk about is the settings where some of these people work and live because some of it is just fucking ridiculous. Are you talking about MI6? Well, yeah, like, the first, like, analyst scene takes place on the set of Skyfall. Yeah, it does, For some reason, uh, (laughs) via No Time to Die. Like, the background... I wonder whether they, like, cannibalised some of these sets or whether these are based on real places, but the background, the wall, is exactly the same as the um, prison set in No Time to Die, where Blofeld's kept. Oh, it is, yeah. the tiles. And then the front of the scene is fucking M's office in Skyfall. Yeah. It's just really bizarre. And then David Morris's practice is in the fucking gherkin. Yeah, yeah. You know, he may be a fairly successful psychoanalyst, but the fact that they're trying to frame him as being, oh, I want to get more successful. You've got a fucking practice in the fucking gherkin. If, it, if this was done nowadays, it would be in the shard. It is one of those ones where, like, it kind of, like, really pumps up these people in these roles. It's like, yeah. suddenly, I'm a psychoanalyst. Uh, where do you work? And it should be like some, oh, well, actually, I have this office just around the corner from Soho. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I rent it from some Eastern European pimp, and uh, it cost me three grand a, a week. <laughs> from central London and instead it's like oh no you work in the gherkin yeah <laughs> yeah where, where do you work it's like oh I, I've got an office in Canary Wharf yeah I own one of the buildings I'm a and, very uh, successful psychoanalyst and, uh, and Je- well, when I was watching this with Jess last night she when it cut to Catherine's apartment she was like she lives in Bruce Wayne's apartment <laughs> she does yeah it's like i'm waiting for you know there's i'm waiting for the bat signal and for it to go down to the bat cave (laughs) oh it's so overblown and because the film's tone is so blur yeah it doesn't make any of these things work if the film was paul verhoeven heightened none of this would matter but because the film is so flat it just emphasizes all the things, the elements that are not right. It's, it's, mm-hmm. all the ingredients are wrong. It says as well, like, the failure of this film says a lot about the fall of the horny movie. Yeah. Growing up in the 90s, I remember, still remember, like, erotic thrillers being a thing. I, I remember walking to school and seeing posters, like, very suggestive posters for Jade, for example, and The Color of Night on yeah. like bus stops on my way to school i'm like what the hell is this just bodies on bodies like live yeah. flesh indecent like a, proposal yeah exactly even so i still like remember posters of like naked bodies pressed up yeah. against each other on bus stations and the, uh, the side of buses and stuff and i was like what happened to this type of film that it went from being top box office films of the year yeah uh, through the 80s even into the 90s and then to this where we're at basic instinct 2 where I mean, we'll go into the stats and facts shortly, but it didn't fare very well at all. Uh, is no. it is it Pornhub? Well, I think the internet definitely had a big effect on that whole 
industry because you know these kind of films are like softcore porn-esque you know especially mm. if you think about Paul Verhoeven's early Dutch films a lot mm-hmm. of them are very borderline pornographic oh they they are yeah and that was sure. when the access to that kind of stuff was a bit more limited you know you're talking magazines badly shot videos and kind of seedy peep shows and cinemas and stuff yeah. like that whereas I'm talking like I'm a fucking expert on this fucking hell but um the fact that <laughs> But the fact that a lot of that kind of stuff is much more easily accessible on the internet for people who want that kind of thing. Maybe even the idea that people are able to more freely like yeah. explore things like sexuality and stuff like that yeah. these days rather than, you know, have that itch scratched by yeah. seeing Catherine Trammell on the big screen do it. Well, that's the thing. that Back then it was a gap in the market. Yeah. Whereas yeah. now there is no market for that because mm-hmm. it's all readily available and, and you know, much more titillating than anything that a mainstream film could achieve yeah and when you haven't got the story to back it up either because you know you can still enjoy films like basic instinct on many other levels whereas this film doesn't really have that and it doesn't have the eroticism either so Mm -hmm. it's kind of a real damp squib in all departments and there must have been a, a fair few examples of this so that must have just completely extinguished the trend mm-hmm. as the you know the internet and the rise of adult material on the internet and i think the like the, the likes of the fall of showgirls as well as another example of yeah uh, even yeah. though it's not specifically an erotic thriller it is a film with a great deal of eroticism and that is another one that failed in a in a big way and, and another one that fortunately in my opinion um has come round to have quite a significant cult following which happens to most of Paul Verhoeven films. <laughs> Everybody always seems to misunderstand whatever the fuck they're about. Even um, teen sex comedies have fallen by the wayside now. Yeah, yeah. You they don't have, get yeah. those anymore. They were replaced by young adult adventures, <laughs> like yes. the Hunger Games <laughs> and Twilight. Like, yeah, whereas you used to get, like, you know, American Pie and, and those kind of films, that kind of R-rated teen thing yeah. is gone completely. Yeah, and then you just get sort of the um, a completely different genre of films in its place, a much more conservative thing going on. Yeah, I think also as like the Hollywood system in regards to all of this, and the, there'll be more people obviously with the Harvey Weinstein thing, and and yes, the, yeah. everything's got much more regulated. You know, there's loads more like non-nudity clauses, all that kind of stuff. That's much more. I feel like actresses are gaining a bit more control and power in that regard yeah it's in terms of more control over how their bodies are shown yeah and obviously you've got things like intimacy coordinators and all that kind of stuff on set these days even looking at the original basic instinct there was a couple of things regarding that you know the infamous leg crossing scene which is a very odd story because that particular scene i'm not 100 percent sure whether i buy it because what would be the point of that shot if it wasn't the case? Yeah. But then there's the other thing with with um, Jean Triplehorn with her big sex scene in that film that she was led to believe that it wasn't going to be as violent as it yeah. ended up being. So there's things like that where it's like, oh, yes, yeah, that's a bit dodgy. I I'm not going to jump in and say cancel Paul Verhoeven, but there are no. some very dodgy things that happened during the making. Of, I love Basic Instinct, but there are some like very dodgy things that I would think are products of their time yeah. during that film. That one is, I buy that Sharon Stone showed more than she thought she was going to be able to show yeah. with that shot. I hate to say this. I watched it in 4K. 
and everything is there. Like yeah, the yeah. film is so detailed in 4K that you can see the <laughs> scars from Michael Douglas's eye lift. Yeah. <laughs> and every close up that he has, you're like, oh, there's his scars. That's why he has that wild eyed look about him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's certainly more on show, I think, than Sharon Stone thought there was going to be in that shot for sure. I think there was mm. some advantage taken advantage of a little bit. And um, and as you say, yeah, with the Gene Triplehorn thing, and it's, it's we've got to mention. I, I love Jean Triplehorn. I think she's a great actress. Yeah, she was yeah. like, I, I love her. I particularly love her in the firm. Fucking yeah, like great performance. This was her first film, Basic Instinct. Yeah. So she signs on to this to kind of again take advantage of that. And it's good that like I, I think it is good in Hollywood now that actors have more control over how their bodies are used, who they're used with, and in terms of like what happens physically on set and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm glad about that, but not but for that. But I do wish, like in terms of the erotic thriller, that it it, it still had some sort of placement because I do miss those kind of films. And I I'm a firm believer as well. Like you get many people saying now that sex scenes are not needed. There's a big social media thing that came out about a year ago where some journalist was arguing that any sex scene in any movie can be easily taken out, and the movie would be no different for it. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that i think there is no problem with exploring the idea of sex and sexuality and everything like that and the whole idea of like sex and murder and stuff like that feels like such a potent pairing of things to milk for drama and 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 thrills and that kind of thing yeah i fully disagree with that and i think that unfortunately at the moment we don't get enough sex in cinema Maybe it's the likes of Christopher Nolan and his dead wives that have done it to us. <laughs> but once you start to see it in film as well, like what happened with Basic Instinct, there was a whole like queer community that saw themselves represented with Catherine Trammell, even though she was you know, the, the, the killer. Yeah. They felt represented by that, and it emboldens them to be more themselves. I think we need stuff like that on screen so people understand that it's okay to explore these ideas. A great film that I saw a few years ago that doesn't have a sex scene in it, but is a very... like sex-based movie is the duke of burgundy yeah and that is all about two people having a complex discussion of where they stand in the relationship as uh, in relation to the sex that they haven't fucking great film uh, i'd recommend that as well but yeah it, it makes you think like when you look at basic instinct 2 wow what a missed opportunity to do something with that you know to, to say these films are on the way out let's do something big let's do something grand let's Let's go out in a big way and, and do something that means that people won't forget what this type of movie meant. And instead, it just lands like, a, as you say, a damp squib. And it, as I say, at the end of the day, it's it's quite bloodless and it's dry. You say something about Basic Instinct, everybody's covered in sweat constantly. You know, yeah. everybody's <laughs> got beat yeah. of sweat on them all the time. They're just so horny. Yeah. <laughs> I do, yeah, I just think this was a particularly flat, silly example of that so it kind of just emphasized that this was on the way out and yeah and we're still in a very much transitionary period regarding all of that where opinions and viewpoints are constantly in flux and there's no new way forward in regard to anything like that so yeah things like that may come back but i think it'll be in a completely different context but yeah 
yeah, it's one of the. It's become you know increasingly a, a, a tricky conversation to have because you get more and more things coming to light mm-hmm. around the culture of Hollywood and and this kind of thing. Yeah, I do think Hollywood's scared of sex at the moment, and it's because of it is because of like how it's been depicted in terms yeah. of the scandals behind the scenes and everything like that. Yeah, I think there are that there, there are a lot of producers a lot more scared about sex than they used to be. Yeah, definitely. But the, the the other weird thing, right, is the fact that it doesn't even take advantage of, you know, what it has. Like, for example, like the big one for me is the fact that you have Charlotte Rampling in this film, who is a, an icon of the swinging 60s. Yes. And Zardoz! Yeah, but even at this particular time in her career, she was still game for doing very kind of risque uh roles in films she is the only character that i think has sexual chemistry with sharon stone yeah and yet she's given absolutely nothing to do in this film absolutely nothing there's a moment where sharon stone and charlotte rampling like look at each other like they're weighing each other up and i think like charlotte rampling obviously as an actress she's like i've been in that position before but There's this moment between them, and I was like, God, there's more sexual chemistry there than there is between Sharon Stone and any other character in this shit piece of shit movie. Yeah, she's the only other actress who knows what kind of film she's in. Yes, yeah, that's it, yeah. But yeah, she's not really given the opportunity to um, capitalise on that. No. Which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a waste of... Yeah, it's just a waste of everybody's time, really, this film. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, again, like I said before, it's just a film that, need, that just had to get done. It's a, just an obligation completely well moving over to the stats and facts uh first i'm going to go through the uh critical reception and let's see how this obligation movie uh, <laughs> translated to its yeah. critical response now i i will say i remember this film coming out and yeah. it was just like one stars everywhere half stars everywhere you know it was very poorly received and that is certainly shown in the rotten Tomatoes score it has a six percent rating um on the website um, that is with 154 reviews, and the critical consensus is that unable to match the suspense and titillation of its predecessor, Basic Instinct 2 boasts a plot so ludicrous and predictable it borders on so bad it's good. The thing is, I would argue against the so bad it's good. Yeah. It's just it's just so bad it's bad. T- to me, some of the only so bad it's good stuff comes from David Thewlis with the yes. odd line. No, you're right, and, you're right. And he wins the award for funniest death scene oh, ever because it's, it's between him and Marion Cotillard and the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, but he literally, you know, the old saying he croaked. He literally croaks when he dies. It's like it's like um. It's like a child's idea of how someone dies. Yeah, you know. I think you could. I, I think <laughs> at that point, he probably didn't give a shit. <laughs> it's like no one's going to see this film. I don't, it doesn't matter. It's not going to harm my career. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just to say, from that six percent rating, it has a three point three out of ten average rating on Ooh. the website as well. And the audience score is 26% with a 2.4 out of 5 average rating. It always skews a little bit higher, the average rating for that. But even so, that's one of the yeah. the worst ones we've seen. For the uh, review, I um, finally, Mr. Ebert has gotten back to us with his review of Basic Instinct 2. <laughs> From the grave. I did receive it in a vision. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <to you>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, he so, came on you. <laughs> oh, no, Mr. Ebert. <laughs> so he it's does like the say in Ghostbusters. I, it, you know, the thing is, as well, when it comes to these films, I don't know what Roger Ebert's going to say or oh what he goodness. said because you never know. And I was fully expecting it to be like three point five out of four. You know, <laughs> I like, love this. I love this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he gave it one point five out of four. And uh, what he does say is, Basic Instinct 2 is not good in any rational or defensible way, but not bad in irrational and indefensible ways. I savoured the icy abstraction of the modern architecture, which made the people look like they came with the building. I grinned (laughs) at that absurd phallic skyscraper that really does exist in London. I like the recklessness of the sex and speed sequence that opens the movie, and curiously, looks to have been shot in Chicago. No, it hasn't. I could appreciate the plot once I accepted that it was simply jerking my chain. Uh, that is, I wanted to use that quote because it goes over his more... Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's more like what he appreciated about the film. Uh, it feels like a very Roger Ebert typical like paragraph yeah. for these type of films. He says, of Sharon Stone, what I can say, except that there is within most men a private place that responds to an aggressive sexual challenge, especially when it's delivered like a lurid torch song. And Stone plays those notes like she worked out. (laughs) And Stone plays those notes like she worked out her own fingering. Oh, Mr. Ebert, please. (laughs) (laughs) No more. But yeah, so that's that's the review of um, of this. I'll just say as well that the IMDb score for this film is also terrible. It's a four point four out of ten rating. Yeah. Uh, so it joins the this rather short list of films that we've covered on the podcast that have, have a sub five rating on IMDb. Yeah. There are a few. I just want to know what Roger Ebert's review for the first one was. Gave me a boner. Four stars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So he gave it two out of four. So basically, he gave Basic Instinct two out of four. So in his opinion, in, in his expert opinion, Basic Instinct two is only half a star less. Yeah, in his, yeah. yeah it's yeah. only half a star less good. He, he ends with saying it was a much harder wank than he anticipated. <laughs> it's because he was sweating more. Oh dear. So anyway. That's uh, that's Roger Ebert. So moving over to the box office side of things, as we've mentioned, I think previously the film has a seventy million dollar budget. A lot of that has to go into like paying the talent involved. So Sharon Stone, I think, was uh, paid. We mentioned sixteen million or seventeen million, something along those lines for this yep. film. Which uh, then goes, you start to understand where the budget has gone on this. Yeah. So it has a domestic total of five million, nearly six million. And it has a worldwide total of nearly $39 million. So that that goes to show just how far this star has fallen. Yeah. In regards to the week that it was released, it opened to number 10 in the box office. (laughs) Oh, wow. In a weekend that included at number one, Ice Age The Meltdown. (laughs) Number two was Inside Man. It sounds like it should be the subtitle of Basic Instinct 2. (laughs) (laughs) ATL, which I've never heard of, really. Failure to launch, which sounds like it should be the subtitle <laughs> of Basic Instinct 2. <laughs> v for Vendetta was number five. Number six was Stay Alive. Number seven was She's the Man, which sounds like it should be the subtitle of Basic Instinct 2. <laughs> number eight was Slither, which sounds like it should be the subtitle <laughs> of Basic Instinct 2. 
<laughs> and number nine was the Shaggy Dog, <laughs> which <laughs> sounds like it should be the subtitle of Basic Instinct 2. <laughs> Even I say 2, the meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear me. Yeah, it should be more like... Pretty much all these titles could be subtitles <laughs> for this film. Oh, dear. And yeah, so it opened at number 10 with $3 million in its opening weekend. Ouch. Oh, wow. So that's um, that's where we stand with that one. Um, so, Andy, I guess the, the final questions to ask are, uh, would you recommend Basic Instinct 2 to our listeners? Nope. <laughs> Not unless you want a good snooze. Um, yes, yeah, it's it, the it, ambient of the uh, yeah. of the erotic thrillers. Yeah, it just um, completely fails as a a follow up to the original, and also just as an erotic thriller in general, because there's yeah. literally nothing erotic or fun or quirky about it. And any any time it tries to attempt that, it just comes off looking a bit awkward it's just very limp in those areas it kind of feels like it's in uncharted waters like i don't know quite what i'm doing here yeah and it's (laughs) just the kind of thing where it's just like so miscast it's like i do not want to see david morris's bottom and i do not want to see him be choked by by a leather belt i would say that's the only part i got hard to be fair Uh, (laughs) just the wrong actor yeah just the wrong just completely the wrong set of ingredients Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I definitely give this one a miss, and it's again, it's not a, it's not even a so bad it's good kind of film. It's it's very boring. Yeah, I I, I was expecting this to be so bad it's good. I was kind of like excited for this one. I was titillated. Yeah. Oh. This film did not live up to its potential in terms of the reputation that I believe that it's earned over the no. years. It's it's dull. It's boring. It's regressive. It's repressive. Uh yeah, it's it's just a, a damp squib. A wet fart of a movie. That's the only thing that's wet about it. It's a very dry fart of a movie, I should say, actually. Oh, and it does end with one of the most amazing, like, little no-line performances from David Morrissey while he's sat in a wheelchair in the most craziest mental asylum of all time. <laughs> Looks like the most luxurious mental asylum of all time. Uh, literally. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I would definitely recommend to skip this one. Okay, and that's all we have time for on this latest episode of Popcorn Digest. If you join us next time, we'll be watching, as Andy has chosen this latest episode, I don't actually know what it's going to be. What are we going to be watching for our next episode, Andy? So, as a little piece of counter-programming, I want to do Muppets from Space. Oh my fucking god. (laughs) I want to see Paul Verhoeven's Muppets from Space. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Muppets in Space. (laughs) <laughs> whatever that may be Muppets in spaces they shouldn't be yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay but until then I've been Gareth and I've I've just not been satisfied whatsoever and thanks for coming <laughs> oh man 